0: A couple weeks ago, I was going through some old things that were my father's, uh, you know, some old stamps and some old baseball cards, and just kind of deciding what was worth continuing to keep around and and what was really just, you know, something I could give to the kids and let them destroy. Um, And uh, I I came across something that I thought was kind of cool. It's a little coin. You won't be able to see it that well. But um, it's unique because it's not a coin like you would spend. It's actually, uh, it says Conestoga Transportation Company. I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. I grew up in the Conestoga area. My wife was born in Conestoga, um, and she lived there her whole life. So I thought, well, this is interesting. So I researched it, and this little coin is actually a token for a trolley system that used to exist back in the day. I think we've got some pictures to kind of help this all make sense a little bit here. Uh, But the token would be good for one trolley trip. Yep, there's the trolley. Uh, which looks pretty cool, it's old school, and it would be used to uh, to transport students from Lancaster City to what I think was called Millersville Norming School or Millersville Normal School. Um, and th- they would go to and from on the school and they had to have one of these tokens. And as I researched it, um, I really began to connect the dots of where everything was and um, there's some ruins that uh, I was quite familiar with. I, I think we have a picture, there you go. Um, I actually had kayaked past this a lot. So it was neat to see this all kind of, Come together, And as I continued to read, like, it, it made sense that this was, you know, something that they would do. Sometimes they would, uh, people would go from Lancaster City and for a five-cent fare, go all the way down to the Peckway River, and they would watch the boat races on the, on the Susquehanna River down there. And, and as I was looking at this, I thought, well, what, what kind of made it fade out? And um, what really, you know, obviously with automobiles coming along, that was part of it. But another part was the trolley had a sort of an annoyance with it, um, that on the uphill portions, it would often lose power, not having enough voltage, and so everybody on the trolley cart would have to get out and push the trolley up the hill. And so at that point, you're wondering, like, do I get this back at this point? Because technically, I'm working for the company now. And so they would have to, you know, push it up there. Or worse, they would try to get speed when they went up a hill. That sometimes, when they would go around a turn, it would it would fall off the track, and you'd you'd have a bunch of people to have to figure out a way to get the trolley back on the track. I've actually been right at that spot many times, which is really cool. Um, and, and so obviously, you know, as the trolley is going, and you got to the uphill portion. You're, you're just dreading that. You're thinking, is this going to have enough power to make it through? it? And, and so because it couldn't handle the uphill well, the trolley failed. It, it just wasn't a thing that continued to be, you know, going. Well. Obviously, they have it now. It's kind of a novelty in certain areas, but, but it began to lose its influence because it didn't handle the uphill well. What I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus in the uphill times of life. What does it mean to follow Jesus when we kind of lose the voltage and we don't have the power and it's a little bit difficult? And maybe you get to that point in life where you're suffering or you, you see a difficult season ahead of you, and you're looking at it and you're thinking, I don't really want to walk. I'd rather find a different way through this. And what, what does it look like to navigate uphill times? Well, we're gonna look at a guy who I think is an expert in the uphill times in life, and that's the Apostle Paul, a messenger working and serving the church who's currently arrested, he's in prison, facing execution. This is the uphill times in his life. And at this point, he actually pauses to sort of give this instruction in Philippians chapter 1 as if to say, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be around. I want you to get this down. I'm going through my uphill time, and it's extremely important for me to let you know that I want you to get uphill times right for Jesus Christ because they can be incredibly powerful. Look, I don't know if you figured this out, but you're going to have difficulties in life. You're gonna experience loss, you're gonna experience pain, you're gonna have suffering. And it's not exactly exciting for me as a preacher to stand up here and say, all right, good, go have a good week, but I know you're gonna have that, and so I want you to be prepared for what those uphill times are. Philippians chapter one, let's check it out. Philippians chapter one, he says this in verse 27, he says, whatever happens, meaning about the outcome of his trial, is he gonna be executed or will he stay alive to continue to serve the church? Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. God, we praise you for what is possible in a relationship with you. I mean, not just life after death and not just a fullness of life, but what that looks like practically for joy, for hope, to be able to love people out of the love that you give us. This morning, I pray that we would look at what that means for us in the difficult times of life. I I think Paul lays out a map for us for what it means, and I pray, Lord, that by your strength, that the uphill times would not be the times that we dread the most, but the times that we look and see with a perspective to say, God, what what would you have for me in these seasons? And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. When Paul talks about this, he uses a word that would have caught their interest as as an audience in their particular era. He he says that you would conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of of the gospel of Christ. And, and, and so that idea of conduct and uh, how you would conduct yourself would have, that, like when he said that, they would have been like, oh, okay, that's a buzzword in our society. Because he's writing from an era, era of Roman rule where to the Romans, everything was about how good of a citizen you were. Like this was important, and it would cover every aspect of life, that you as a Roman citizen, you had privilege, but you also had responsibility. You were supposed to do things that made you a good citizen, and they knew this. This would have been in their vocabulary. When he used the word conduct, they would have immediately thought about what that meant for their citizenship and how they lived that out, and Paul takes that word, and he kind of hijacks it and says, look, that's true of a believer in Jesus Christ as well that your conduct and the way that you live should match, match the reality within which you live, that this should be true of you and the way that you go about life. And really what he's appealing to is that every one of us would have a sense of authenticity about us, that I am genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ, and that shows up in every area of life that I live. It shows up in home and the way that I interact with my loved ones. It shows up when nobody's around. It shows up when I'm in my car. It shows up wherever I am that what is true of my faith in Jesus Christ would show out authentically wherever I am. In my opinion, this is one of the biggest problems that people have had with the church throughout centuries is this cry of it's hypocritical. Like they say one thing and then they do another. And, and what Paul says is we should be authentic. We should conduct ourselves in a consistent, not, not perfect, but in a consistent manner because who Jesus is doesn't change based on the setting or the season of my life. And so he, what he does is he, he talks about this really in a sense of like you, you can be a good Roman citizen, but what does it mean to be a good citizen in a Jesus community, in the church? What does it mean for us to follow after him? And and I want us to look at three specific things that I think are going to bring out what it means for us to have good conduct in life so that we're authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And and so we'll just kind of work down through them. I I think the first one, um, and and I, I hope they'll build because the idea is not that it's one, two, and three, and they're not interrelated, but it's that one makes two possible and two makes three possible. Um, and so so we'll start with one. One is the idea that it would mean if you're going to be a good citizen in the Jesus community of the church, it would mean that you cherish unity. It would mean that you cherish unity. He says that you would stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one. That the church is not a solo mission. That this has everything to do with how we interact. In fact, much of the emphasis on the New Testament is on how we interrelate with one another. That us is the body of Christ, that we can figure out how to work this. This is why again and again you see the phrase one another in the scriptures. That you would love one another, that you would bear with one another, that you would be patient with one another, that you would forgive one another. These terms are all emphatically saying that this Jesus community should be really good at figuring out how to love people. Not that it's easy. In fact, if, anyways, if anything, I would say that it's really more challenging. Because what he's challenging this community with is the idea that you would move past a superficial relationship. Past the idea where I like everything about you, a- a- except for the things that annoy me, and I'll just kind of Put those things to the side. I'll just pretend they aren't real. This is a this is a relationship that says genuinely, I'm going to love you, even the parts of you that frustrate me or bother me. And that's the idea of Colossians, where it says, "Bear with one another." Yeah, there's a time. I mean, trust me, we've all been in quarantine at a different point in this year, and there's a time where it was difficult to bear with each other. And what Paul's saying is, as citizens in the Jesus community, each one of us should recognize the importance of what it means to strive for unity, to strive for an interrelated, uh, in in such interrelated relationships in such a way where we, we don't look at anybody else in the body of Christ, no matter our history with them, if they've been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ by faith, no matter the history that we have with them, we don't look at anybody else with less value or we don't treat them as any less. Nobody becomes beneath our efforts to love them. That's what he's saying here, that we would strive together for the gospel itself, that we would, we would see this as really th- this love as something that we prize more than anything else. And so, so when you think of what it means to have been successful in life, is it something that you've achieved, some status that you've earned? Is it the way that you've performed in a certain area of life? Because Paul is essentially teaching throughout, not just, not just Philippians, but in Romans and Corinthians, he's saying if you've loved well, you've lived well. If you've loved well, you've lived well. If you get to the end of your life and you say, wow, well, I've loved God well, I loved his followers well, I loved the people who don't know Jesus well, then you have lived well. I don't care what your your version of success that you were raised and trained to think or, or what our society says this is what makes you a successful human being. I care what Scripture teaches. And what I see over and over again is that if you love well, you live well. If you love well, then you lived well. And what Paul is hinting at as he speaks of the striving together is this idea that we've we've expressed a number of times that that God can do and God delights in doing far more through a church than he does through an individual. That this is a group effort. This is a community effort. I I was thinking about this as we were, um, as I was reflecting on the effort last week that that uh, you, you as a church and, you know, we as a church that we serve the community in with the, the, Thanksgiving, uh, the, the Thanksgiving food boxes to the families we were able to give to and to the Operation Christmas Child and packing those supplies to be able to send those out. And look, look, can you imagine if that was one person trying to do all that? It wouldn't happen. It would be impossible. Or can you imagine if it was a group of people who were all grumpy and complaining and upset at each other and held grudges quietly? It wouldn't have near the impact. What Paul's saying is no, you love each other so that you can accomplish the mission of loving people who don't know Jesus Christ well. You get this better so that that happens. And it shows up in two different terms that Paul talks about. He says that, that, and they're both community ideas, and neither one can be something that you would do individually in, in this sense that he's talking about. He says that you would stand firm for the gospel, that you would stand firm as if, as if there's a force pressing against, and it takes more than one person to hold that door shut that as the world might try to corrupt what Christianity is teaching and what we're saying is the way that we should live, that we stand firm for the faith. But then he also says that we would contend. And contend is an athletic. So stand is, is a military term, stand your ground. Contend is an athletic term. That you would have a team effort. Now I have made no joke about the fact that I'm a Patriots fan. Now to some of you, that is a joke, um, especially this year. <laughs> But one of the things that I've always appreciated about Bill Belichick is that he doesn't go after the star player. He's not looking for the guy who's, who's all about himself. He's looking to build a team. In fact, I read an article about one of his, his former players saying that his philosophy in building a team is far different than what everybody else is doing. He's not looking for one guy who can, who can be the factor to win the game, he, he's looking for a team that operates together, that they can tend as one. That's what he's talking about here. And he's, he's putting out there the importance of how much value he places on us loving each other well so that when we, quote, get on the field, there's a trust there. Th- there's a genuine love there that allows us to serve in a way that's absolutely powerful compared to if it was just a bunch of solo efforts. We have a couple of things coming up. We've got a sock drive to Bethesda Mission. You know what? That's a community effort. If I went out and got a a couple of pairs of socks and dropped them off, what impact does that have versus if we all did that? We said, you know what? We're going to give you one gift this year. We've got uh, an objective that we have in front of us as a church to partner with one of our missionaries, David Lease, with Reach Global, where he's got one particular homeowner that he reached out to us about. His name's Wendell, and Wendell has just, you know, he's fallen on hard times. He used to be a fisherman, and that's not really paying the bills anymore. And and then a hurricane came and just ravaged his house, and he's been living in mold. And, And so David has reached out to us to say, is there a way that we can raise money to, to be able to, to, to impact this man and to love him. And you know what? Maybe we can even set a t- send a team down to be able to help rebuild some of this. These are group efforts. We're not looking for one person to say, I'll write the check, I'll go fix it. We're saying, what can we do as a team? Let's, let's pray for this man. Let's build a relationship with this man. Let's come as- alongside our missionary so that he's not alone because this is a group effort. As, so here, here's my heart and here's my plea for us as we look at this first idea of what it means to conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel is to, to live as authentic citizens, that we would strive as one, that you would resolve, that you would resolve. So resolve, have the fortitude, have the desire, have the devotion, that you would resolve to resolve whatever is between you and another believer in Jesus Christ. That you would have the resolve to resolve issues. To say, you know what, this issue, whatever it is, has been going on for far too long. And I either need to just forgive, or I need to sit down with you, or I need to sit down with you and and somebody else, one of the elders, a pastor, or just a, a friend, so that we can resolve. Because this is important to Jesus Christ. This is important as we contend for the gospel. That we would have a resolve to say resolving issues between brothers and sisters in Christ is incredibly important. I cannot stress how much that that is a big deal to what we see in the text, that we would solve the problem so we can solve the problem. That so we would have the resolve to resolve. That's, that's the first thing, that we would be a church that understands that, that this is a community effort and we're going to cherish unity. The second one is then is that we cherish unity. We understand that it would mean that we should, in fact, strive for the gospel. That we should, in fact, strive for the gospel. That we should have a desire to see other people have what we have. Last week uh, in the sermon, we talked about how faith in Jesus Christ puts you in a category that we would call a win-win. That, that no matter what happens in life, you have the opportunity to serve him and love him. And even if death comes, it means gain because we're in an existence and a reality that's better than this is currently. Win-win. Win-win. And here Paul says essentially, it should be part of our mark. It should be part of, part of who we are to say, I'm going to be a person that invites others to have win-win as well. I want other people to have win-win. I want that to be something that is part of who, we am, who I am. I'm going to be a person that is an inviter. That's just it, it, To me, if you're a citizen of Jesus Christ, then by default you are an inviter. That's who you are. It's part of your makeup now. That you don't be a person who is, who is win-win while others are out there lose-lose and, not, and you're just okay with that. This is, thing, this is the thing where we're going, I am now an inviter. And Paul in Philippians 1, he speaks about doing this with courage. The word courage that he chooses is a word that, that you are okay with a public nature to this that this isn't a private enterprise to live out your faith, but this is a public thing, that you deem that which you are known for to be worth the potential disgrace that might come along with it. You deem that which you are known for to be worth the potential disgrace that might come along with it. It's worth it. I, it's just who I am. A couple years ago, uh, I was at a baseball game I mentioned last week. I like the Brewers. And uh, one year in my life, the Brewers were really good. I mean, they, they won the division. They were looking like they, they were going to go on to the, the World Series. They didn't, but they looked good. And I got to go to one of the games against the last place Pittsburgh Pirates. So I went and I was wearing my Brewers stuff, and the, and the Brewers won. No, actually, sorry. I take that back. The Pirates won. The Pirates won, and it was one of the few times all year that the Pirates won, and I'm walking out of the game afterwards in, in the stadium, and this girl who probably had a little bit too much to drink uh, comes along, and she sees my brewer's stuff, and she starts mocking me. And she's like, yeah, we beat you. You guys are horrible. This is, this, your team's a joke. And she goes, look at the scoreboard. And I was like, scoreboard? Look at the standings. Like this is one game. This is like you guys are in last place. Our record against you overall, we've won so many more games that this is like what are you even talking about? But she tried to bring disgrace upon me and I'm just like well, uh, why? Like you understand at the end of the day that that we're winning. That that's the idea that Paul is presenting here with with this courage idea that that somebody might say, why would I go to your church? Why would I attend your Bible study? Why would I want to talk about Jesus? And there's a part of you that goes, because we're winning. And you might look at me in a way that's mocking or you might bring disgrace upon me, but I know the standings. I know the outcome. I just want you to be part of that there's a part of this where it's just like, you might disgrace me. That's all right. We talked last week, we wed the grace of God to our disgrace. And that's not going to shape this. That's not going to change this. It's a courage that says, I'm going to be a person that finds a way, finds my particular unique way that the Spirit of God is leading me to advance the gospel, to reach people, to be an inviter. I I phrase that very specifically because I firmly believe that having done this for most of my life, trying to follow Jesus and and be an inviter, you've got to find your way. The Spirit of God will lead you to. That might be you saying, hey, would you come over to my house? I want to sit down and talk with you. It might be you casually saying, hey, man, I was thinking about um, God and I was wondering, what do you think about that? Find your unique way, but we've got to be inviters because it's win-win or it's lose-lose. We've got to be Inviters. I, I, I reached out to one of our missions partners. We had a, a Zoom call with them, and I said, you guys are trained for this. Like, wh- what is your method for reaching people for Christ? And they said, let me just give you, like, three, three things that we think are important. I mean, I think, you'll fi- again, you'll find your, your unique way to be an inviter through, through some of these things. Um, the, the first one, uh, she, she actually said, um, have a habit to follow up with people. So, like, when your coworker is saying, like, I'm really struggling with having, uh, uh, you know, this, this appointment coming up Friday. And everybody else in the office has forgotten that you had an appointment. And next Monday, you come in and you say, hey, I was praying for that appointment, and I just wanted to know how it went. The intentionality to follow up. She said, write it down in your phone. Type it up. To have a habit to value people by following up. Um, they also said, don't be afraid of spiritual transparency. Don't be the person that says, oh, I can't. I'm busy Sunday morning. I got something to do. As just be honest and be transparent. I'm a person that goes to church on Sunday morning. You're more than welcome to come with me. Or, I can't. I've got Bible study. You want to come with? Like it's, this is who you are. This is what it means to be authentic. It's not something we hide. It's just who we are and I hope you get the sense that this is me trying to make you feel guilty. This is me trying to give you tools to say what does it look like for you to be an inviter and then lastly they said just don't be afraid of the simple invitation. Would you like to talk about Jesus? He's meant so much to me. Don't be afraid of the simple invitation. When Paul talks about this he says that we, we do this without fear. The word for fear is literally this I- idea of unflinching unflinching okay i'm gonna i'm gonna invite you to church you might hate that okay i'm not gonna flinch i know that this might come when i was a kid i uh i used to hide for hours to scare my brothers really badly like it's the hunter in me i would sit under the bed and i wait for them to come home and and when they got right at the foot of the bed I'd reach out and grab their foot and just scream and there was a part of me that really enjoyed me, uh, enjoyed that and, and and so now it's payback time that my kids like to do the same thing to me and there was a moment not too long ago where one of them got me pretty good and I got over the the you know the shock of being surprised and I just got down and I said look I got to tell you something if you keep doing this, there's likely to be one of two responses. One, where I respond as if you're an intruder in our house. Or two, I stop breathing. <laughs> because dad, dad might not have a heart that keeps working after you scare them. So we've got a new family rule that nobody's allowed to jump out and scare dad. Paul, Paul says, like, this shouldn't surprise you. We live in a world that doesn't love our god the same way that we do we live in a world where some people hate him but that does not change the nature of our mission in fact paul says look this this whole thing of your courage in the face of disgrace is a sign he says he says it's a sign because there are those who are going to accept it and they're, they're, they're gonna be saved and it's a sign to them that this is amazing, but it's also a sign to those who are rejecting it because there are those in this world who reject the idea of being accountable to a God, who reject the idea of being responsible to a God. And Paul says your courage serves as a sign to both people of hope or it serves as, an, as a sign as an alarm that these people are courageous about what they believe. And if they're that courageous, then maybe, in fact, there is something authentic about this all after all. And so we move forward, and we strive for the gospel, even in the face of fear. Because the third thing is this idea that there's difficulty in this world. And what Paul does is he reframes difficulty in a way that, that for us to undergo difficulty would mean that difficulty was, in fact, a privilege. The difficulty itself was a privilege. It's a fascinating concept. We see this in the idea that Paul says that he was granted to suffer for Jesus Christ. That he was entrusted with an opportunity to suffer. And it's a statement that as I study it, it, it brought back to me John chapter 18 where, where after the Last Supper um, at Judas' left, he's gone and gotten the soldiers and they're on their way to, to arrest Jesus and and Peter stands out with his sword and he intervenes and, and, and is trying to stop Jesus from suffering. In John 18, verse 11, Jesus responds. He said, Jesus, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? And th- that statement is filled with two things. One. It's filled with the idea of pain. He knows that there will come a wrath of God. The cup, the, shall I not drink the cup? The cup is throughout the scriptures, even into Revelation, this idea that God will be judge, and in his just wrathful anger, he will pour out like a cup. It's filled with that idea. But at the same time then, Jesus says it was given to me. It was entrusted to me. Shall I not drink the cup? that was given to me. Jesus speaks of two things. He speaks of pain, and he speaks of, of privilege. And then John 18, what Jesus is saying is that, what we use the phrase, it's worth living to die for. What Jesus says is ultimately that this is worth living to suffer for. This is not, j- j- that, that that what God has called him to is not about one moment of service, but it's a lifetime that says, I'm gonna serve you, even if there are seasons of suffering even if there's a length to this. And and, and so what we see then is Jesus, in in the best interest of others, perceives this whole thing as not just pain, but as privilege. It's a fascinating way to look at it. And and so then my question is, what if in your life, what, what if like Jesus, your difficulty is really your privilege? What if God has entrusted you with some, something to further his mission, to refine you, to bring you closer to him, to bring others closer to him. And what if the very difficulty is, in fact, a privilege? See, I think it's one thing to just accept difficulty. This is my lot in life, this is what I've been given. I think it's one thing to accept it, I think it's a totally different thing to say it's a privilege that God has bestowed upon me an honor to be able to face this. But what we see in Paul is, is that who Jesus is and what he has called us to is so incredible that it's worth sacrificing what brings us materialistic comfort, what brings us situational comfort. That who Jesus is, that that he's worth it. My, my kids, we typically watch uh, shows on Netflix or on like Disney plus or that sort of thing and so the other day we were watching a show and it was on cable TV and it had commercials. This was like, this was new to my kids and normally like commercials that they happen to see are like toy related ones. These were all like Medicare (laughs) and my kids were like, this is awful. I can't believe this. What's wrong with this TV? Like, literally, these are things that they're saying. Like, this TV is horrible. Turn it off. Like, guys, it's just, it's just a commercial. Like, Daddy grew up with this. This was, this was 15 minutes of every half-hour TV show I watched as a kid. You just learned to deal with it. This is, this is my thing. As, as we as a culture, and I hope you have cultural awareness to understand that we really don't suffer to the degree that most people, when this was written, suffer. We live in a much more more luxurious state of existence with much more comfort. I mean, if it's hot, you go home and you turn on the air conditioner, right? You're not used to the suffering component that's here. So when we talk about it as a privilege, it seems somewhat foreign. My hope is you understand that even if you're not used to it, what God's word says on the matter remains true. It's not that suffering is good. It's that God can bring good out of suffering. Kind of wrap up with this this idea. Um, it, it's I got a soil test on, on uh, some ground that we own in the mountains because I wanted to plant some things there. And, and so, uh, you know, it used to be a, an old pine tree, like rows of big pine trees, and we cut them down and we exposed the soil there, and, and so I wanted to grow some, some food there, and we sent the soil test in, and I got it back, and it, it was like, I mean, it's not even the size of this room. It's like twice the size of the stage is how big it is, and it said, for that amount of ground, we need 17 tons of lime to make it able to grow things suitably. I was like, does that say 1.7? No, that says 17 tons of lime. I took it to a a farmer friend of mine, and I I actually gave it to his dad. He's an old retired farmer, and his dad got the greatest laugh out of my soil test. He's calling in other farmers, would you look at this sour as a tomato. It's sour as a tomato. Look at this. This, you aren't going to grow anything here for a long time, and he's just (laughs) laughing his head off. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to grow something there. It might take a couple years. But I'm going to grow something there. Look, th- th- that's what Paul says our perspective of pain should be. When we look at the event that causes pain in our life, there should be a part of us that says, man, that, that's like growing, that's like trying to produce a crop of, uh, of green beans and corn in toxic wasteland. Okay. That's what God has entrusted me with. In this season of my life, this is the soil I have to work with. And he is an expert at bringing life and bringing joy out of places that seem pretty dark and damp. That's the privilege. And so what is your pain? Because ultimately, it's also your privilege. Because there's a God who can take whatever is toxic about it, whatever is dreadful, whatever is harmful about it, and he can use it to produce something that's absolutely beautiful. After all, we're talking about a guy who's facing execution. And he makes a statement, I rejoice always. In Philippians 2, he says, do all things without complaining or grumbling. He's in prison saying that. And so I guess we reach the uphill portion of the journey where the voltage has waned. We're past all the nice hills and the the gentle rolling scenery, and now we face the uphill climb so what do you do? You say, God, I understand that you've entrusted me with this opportunity. And so for your gospel and for your glory, let's make the best of it. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you that we remain in the win-win of life even when we have the uphill in front of us. Lord, my heart broke as I saw that this year alone 17,000 people in Japan committed suicide. Pain without any sort of meaning is nothing but despair. So God, I pray that we would find meaning in our pain, that we would find purpose, that we would turn it over to you. You are absolutely incredible and you make this all worth it. We praise you in your son's name, amen.